today's guest, Ian Whiteford. The way we structured ourselves would, would, would align with the business. And so we would ask ourselves as a business, what should be central and consistent across all areas of the company? So for example, the brand, you know, we want the brand to be consistent. We want our marketing to be consistent. Um, you know, our voice, our tone to be consistent across all areas, regions, products, as much as, you know, we, we, we feel is reasonable. And so from a people and talent perspective, it's like, well, what do we need to be consistent from our perspective? So we don't want people on multiple different systems unable to interact with each other. So we need a central, you know, IT team that supports that. Every time you walk into an improbable office, either in China or London, I want it to feel the same. I want it to have the same look and vibe and feel familiar to people, you know, because it's all about the, you know, showing the culture we've got. Ian started his career at Goldman Sachs in the UK and then moved to Improbable, which was a metaverse company or is a metaverse company, actually a multiverse company before Mark Zuckerberg even had the vision for it and Meta become Meta. So quite pioneering in that space. And he built out all the people, function, processes, infrastructure, when scaling from around 50 to more than 1,200 people across several locations like China, the US and Europe. And then started his own company as a consultant now. We worked together already at Tier when we also had some massive scaling projects going on there to consolidate payroll into um, one country or not one country, but from several countries into one um, system. And um, he and I talked a lot about decentralization versus centralization and also the difference between a DAO and a VC and a VC as a vehicle so that's quite a broad episode and then going also into what are the different approaches and mistakes you can make versus building central versus decentral and this is something what you could really go way more deeper and we probably do somewhere in the future but now enjoy the episode with ian then you can build trust and then you can spend less time communicating and more time just getting shit done. Then I went home and, and thought about this sentence. We basically put it on the table. Hiring takes time. People are trained. How to objectively judge certain situations. It's very, 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 very hard to change things. That was the learning. Entrepreneurs with empathy. On the people side. Hey Ian, how are you today? Very well, thank you Thomas. How are you? I'm also fine and I love your new background. Um, so what did you build there? So for all the listeners who also have video on YouTube and Spotify, you should check out where Ian is sitting. It's really a cool box. Yeah, it gets variously described as some sort of TARDIS, some sort of Swedish sauna. But this is the pod that I've got in my garden. Was lucky enough to be able to build a pod. Didn't build it myself, I have to say but built it sort of in the edge of the garden. So I've got the separation of work and home, which is fantastic. And uh, just having that separate space makes all the difference. It's called Holly Pods, if anybody's interested. Highly recommend it. Uh, it's a great setup. So you did it mainly to separate really work and private life also locally from the home office? Exactly. Smart. I was finding Doesn't... it difficult when you're working from 
you know, your house trying to switch off. The kids are running in and interrupting you. So I felt I had as a priority when I've been working fully remote in the last two years to make sure I've got a separate space. And I have to say, for me, it makes a big difference. It really allows me to switch off as I sort of walk back to the house and then I can be a more engaged parent. Does it get warm in the summer in there or really hot? TBC, this is going to be my first summer, but let's just say it's already 20 degrees <laughs> in here and it's not very warm outside. So I uh, I may be installing aircon if it gets really bad. Yeah, yeah. So keep me updated. It looks really cool. So Ian, maybe for the listeners, can you give us a bit more context around your background? Yeah, of course. Um, why don't I just start from the start and feel free to to jump in as always, Thomas. So for those that don't know me, I'm Ian. I've been in the people, talent and operations space for over 10 years now. I started my career at Goldman Sachs, so very much in the corporate world. I interned with them and then started as a graduate. Had a fantastic four years, I think, with Goldman Sachs. It's definitely not for everybody. It's uh, you know, an extremely aggressive culture is maybe one word, um, but I absolutely loved it. It was a great place to start out my career, and I was lucky enough to have a variety of roles there, you know, everything from a sort of business partner to an operations to a people analytics, and then eventually an employee relations role. So really, you know, an ideal place to start your career, very challenging, but also really, really rewarding. But I, I then decided that it's very difficult to feel like you're having an impact in a place like Goldman Sachs. So I decided to move to a smaller company. I knew I wanted to get into the technology space as that really seemed to be where the most exciting companies and the most exciting roles were. I was lucky enough that a company called Improbable uh, decided to take a punt on me at the time um, because I really didn't have uh, much relevant experience. For those that don't know Improbable, they are, I would call a, a metaverse company. We've been using that word for about 10 years, so well before it was wow. popular. And really, Improbable did a, a number of things. We built uh, our own games. We built a platform for games developers. And we also used that technology for the military and for simulations as well. And so I joined Improbable when they had 50 people. They were just based out of London. I initially joined as their head of HR um, and then eventually was asked to take on some of the operations. So, you know, facilities, IT, payroll. And then eventually, um, before I left, I was asked to take on the recruitment as well. And, you know, we really went on that crazy scaling journey. I made every mistake in the book. I was extremely uncomfortable the entire five years I was there and when and, I left from, we've from gone what from time? 50 people so at what at what time did you start there so this was about six or seven years ago now um so I think maybe 2016 something like uh, that so when the market was really and hot. yeah exactly when the market was very hot and I left uh, about two years ago and by that stage, we'd scaled up to about 1,200 people. We'd expanded into the US, China, Europe. We'd acquired three companies. 
So really, really was that sort of once in a lifetime role. Uh, it was constantly struggling to keep my head above water. Most of the time it was underwater. Uh, and as I say, made a lot of mistakes in that time, but had a fantastic experience and learned an enormous amount as well. Um, and then fast forward to where I am today. So after leaving Improbable, I decided to set up my own consultancy. I wanted to take some of the learnings that I'd had at Improbable and see how I could apply that and help a number of companies. And I was lucky that pretty much straight away, I got connected to uh, DAO, which is for those that aren't familiar, it's a decentralized autonomous organization. It's called the BitDAO, and it's got a it's a multi sort of billion dollar fund which invests in and spins up companies in the Web three space. And what's unique about that, the fact that it's a DAO, means everybody who is a token holder gets to vote on where we invest, what companies we spin up. So very different from your traditional VC, and that has required a total rewrite of everything I learned at Improbable from a people and talent perspective. I've had to redo and think differently. And so that's been a great challenge. And I've been lucky to work with a, a couple of other companies as well, um, including Tier, where Thomas and I have been connected. Yeah, I think uh, we got connected even through well. a traditional so, VC, right? So we were connected through um, Northzone back then, I, I, I remember. I think it was Elena. I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah, that's exactly. That's and exactly. and what's exactly and, the difference um, so yeah. between a, C, a VC and a DO? Yeah, so if you think about your traditional VC, you've probably got a small team of partners, you know, often less than 10, who will sort of be the main group responsible for the investments you make. So they will go out and source deals and the group will all vote on, you know, where we invest. And the actual investors who have put money into the fund, they don't have a say on where that money goes and what the investments are. You know, they're very much passive investors. Whereas a DAO, the unique thing about a DAO is that everybody who owns a token, so you can go and buy however many tokens you would like, then for each token you have, you have one vote. And so every investment or every company that we're going to spin up there has to be a proposal. It must be discussed in our forums and, uh, you know, working through the pros and cons. And then everybody who's a token fold holder votes yes or no. So it's very much democratizing the whole concept of investment. Um, and there's there's kind of many nuances to it, but but that's a kind of high level summary of the differences. And how many different investors does a DOE then have? And what, what are the ticket sizes? And what's the distribution of the big fishes versus the regular average um, investor and what's the deal size maybe or the investment ticket size yeah good question so obviously every DAO is different and you get different types of DAOs that aren't run as just investments and vcs so for example you know you might spin up a, a new uh, fintech product in the web3 space you know some sort of exchange And that could be run and operated by a DAO. So I, I would call it an experiment still at this stage. But, you know, it's really sort of, can we democratize companies? Can we really, you know, how does it work when you really distribute decision making across a company? In many ways, that's the experiment of a DAO. Um, but in our particular case, you know, we're an investment DAO. 
we had when the markets were at their all-time high i think we had three and a half billion dollars uh and in our funds and uh i think now we probably have about two billion dollars so we're talking about significant money and yes. so, so trust the comparison size. just in comparison um ian i think i was just now at a uh, Uh, investor summit at HV Capital and HV Capital they are quite established already let's say in Europe and they launched their ninth fund and it's 750 million I guess for the fund number nine exactly. and you're talking there about three billion exactly. <laughs> exactly exactly so so our strategy because of that is clearly it's not going to be you know, we could make $100 million investments, but it's going to be very difficult to move the needle. And so our strategy has been more of a fund of funds type approach. So for example, we have Game 7, uh, which we, the Treasury uh, voted and all of the token holders voted to assign $500 million of our Treasury to Game 7, which is a fund effectively focused on you know, Web3 gaming, metaverse, how can we build tooling, make strategic investments. Uh, so so it's been fast, fascinating space, very, very different uh, in every way from both, you know, what the, the business is doing, but also from a people and talent operations perspective. It's been, a, it's been a journey. And again, I'm at the stage of feeling, gosh, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm learning every day. I'm uncomfortable every day, which is... Uh, And a nice place to be in. And the, how did you get into this um, DAO um, space? And what, what is your exact role? So I was, so I've been interested in the Web3 space for a while, probably like a lot of people. I thought it was a get rich quick scheme. And you know, I got scammed on different NFTs and invested in tokens, which are now worth nothing, much to my wife's disgrace. Um, however, that sort of grew into a real appreciation for what is possible in the Web3 space. And ultimately, it comes down to ownership. You know, the products allow and the blockchain allows us to have much more ownership over our own money is like the classic example or our data, you know, or a number of different things, our identity. So, you know, really, when you think of it that way, you start to see the opportunities. I became really interested in the space and I was looking at where are a lot of the top talent going? So your grads from MIT right now, you know, obviously it used to be your Googles and Facebooks is where they wanted to go. You know, that really isn't the case anymore. A lot of them are looking to, you know, spin up their own companies in the crypto space and the AI space and And it's really changing how how sort of what the job market looks like. And I just sort of was getting more and more interested in the space and then was lucky to be connected to a couple of people who were really the founders. So they work for a cryptocurrency exchange, which is, you know, very much a central exchange run like a Web2 company. But they saw the future as being in the, the Web3 space, more in the DAO model of operating. And so... They asked me to come on board, you know, as number three and help them figure out how we were going to set this up from a, a people, talent and operations perspective. So how were we going to go out there and hire the people we needed with the, the Web3 experience? How were we going to pay people? This concept of what's an employee 
you know, is very different in in the crypto space. It's much more fluid. There's lots of different people contributing to a DAO. And so, so yeah, they, they asked me to come and help sort of figure some of this out. And it's been a sort of huge journey. Again, lots of mistakes made, lots of lessons learned over the last year or so since I've been working with them. In case you like my show, please subscribe. I would really appreciate it. What? How do you define in your words Web 2 versus Web 3? And maybe then, what do you think is different in um, the whole infrastructure systems from a people perspective? Yeah, I'm sure I'll butcher this. I'm sure there's a lot better people to talk on these subjects than I am. However, from my perspective, it's like the key word I'd go back to is ownership. So if you think about the products that we use in Web2, your Facebook's your Amazons, your, you know, name any other big tech company. It's very much a case of they own our data. You know, we are the product. They own our data. They make all of their money that way. The banks are another good example of that. If I want to send you 10 pounds, I have to go into my bank, which then speaks to some central bank, which then speaks to your bank, you know, and there's many different parties involved. We can see the the, the danger of what happens recently when, you know, Silicon Valley Bank goes under and mm. people were potentially losing their deposits. So we don't have true ownership of that. The banks are owning that. Um, whereas, so that's kind of the Web 2 picture. And then, well, what's the vision of Web 3? And I don't want to pretend that everything's rosy and been worked out and perfect in the Web 3 world. But ultimately, what it comes down to for me is ownership. So I can store my money on the blockchain I, we don't need any central party to confirm who I am or to you know confirm that the money's there. Anybody can go on and see it. I can send you the money, the £10 directly to you without any middle parties. And we lose all the you know inefficiencies of Web2 because of that. Um, and, and also from a career perspective, ownership is also the key word. You know, people are drawn to web three i believe again because of the, it, it comes down to this ownership point they want ownership over their data or their money or you know etc cetera, etc cetera. and i think that applies to a lot of web three careers as well which is people want more ownership over their career they want the ability to work for a number of different uh you know groups sort of contribute to a number of different projects you know they they want to move away from this very sort of top-down approach to management and so these are the themes we've been grappling with um, in the last year. And what are then some some learnings you make here or made? So there's a number of learnings. It's almost like, where do I start? So I think you have to take a real step back. And again, I'm going to keep saying it, but it's like the ownership piece, the autonomy piece is key. So then what you have to do is look at everything that, you know, every aspect of the employee journey and you have to ask yourself, well, how can we give people more ownership and autonomy over that aspect? So let's, you know, I mean, there's like the obvious ones, which is where they work right now. You know, obviously this is a theme in Web2 as well right now, but people want, I say, there's no right there's no perfect you know fully remote hybrid everybody is different everybody wants a different way of working and so how can we give people the autonomy 
to make those decisions and try and set them up for success, allow them to set themselves up for success. So it's not about us saying this is our company policy. And it's about us saying to them, you know, what, what, how will you be successful and let us help you? So if you want to go into an office for a couple of days and let's think about how we can enable that. Um, if you want to work fully remotely and you want to travel in your van around Europe, let, as long as you deliver and you're productive, then fantastic. And so, you know, that's just an example. And then, you know, definitely things like, you know, how they're rewarded are completely different. So, you know, there's much more focus on token compensation. So equity isn't really a big thing in Web3. Um, it's all about sort of token compensation. Uh, and the nice thing about that is that tokens are liquid. So whereas with Improbable, you know, your equity is not liquid. So, you know, you end up sort of trying to sell the dream in many ways to your candidates, for example. And um, the nice thing about tokens is, well, I can show you, you know, right now what the value is. I can tell you what we want it to be, but ultimately you can make the decision on what it is today. You know that when you get that token, you can sell it there and then. And so there's definitely advantages there, but there's just kind of, you know, I don't really, I, it's probably not interesting for me to go into the detail, but things around the compliance of tokens, you know, we'll, see, we'll hear a lot about the US regulations right now. So, you know, how do you make sure you stay ahead of that and always stay on the right side of things? How do you make sure you're always above board? You know, how do you make sure you're fair? It's, there's there's kind of many challenges uh, to do that. And again, you know, from a sort of just a, a payroll and employment perspective, it's very different as well um, than, you know, pe we do want to hire people for all over the globe. Um, there's a lot of niche skill sets, you know, your Solidity Engineers, which is the main programming language on the blockchain. You know, it's extremely hard to find good Solidity Engineers. There's just not that many out there. That means they come at a real premium. There's no such thing as sort of regional salaries. It's all a global salary because they can work for, you know, any what number of projects who want them. And so, you know, there's been lots of learnings and challenges around that as well. And maybe let's go a bit into the learnings and challenges of improbable, because I think it's, especially from the the people infrastructure side, where you, I think, uh, have a very strong spike from your expertise. Maybe we go a bit through the journey on how how did you set up improbable for success, scaling from 50 to 2000, um, 1,200 people or so, because expansion yeah. to china us across europe and so on it has a lot of bottlenecks so let's maybe go a bit into that topic <laughs> yeah so improbable is an amazing one um as I, i mentioned you know we really went through that extreme extreme growth and you know my role just kind of set the scene, changed a lot. You know, my role started when I joined, I was sort of their first kind of, you know, HR hire. They didn't have a lot of in place. They had a good talent team at the time that was hiring away, but then, you know, everything else was a little bit of an afterthought from there. And so that's why they asked me to come in and focus on, on, uh, you know, building up the basics. And, you know, it was a, a, a real sort of punt on their end because, I did, hadn't done anything. There was nothing I could really take from Goldman Sachs. 
and apply, you know, at a small company like Improbable. And so I didn't know what a value was when I joined. You know, it was the real basics were sort of missing. And so it was my job really to just, you know, get out there, learn, figure out what other companies were doing, and then start to put those basics in place. Then, you know, as we grew, we took on a huge investment from SoftBank, which was about 500 million at the time. Um, when, you know, our burn was very low, we probably only had a couple of hundred employees. So that was the sort of next phase of really accelerating. And then my role had to change from, you know, just running a small team to suddenly growing out the team, which and I'll, I'll, I'll touch on some of the lessons as part of this, um, you know, managing managers and all of the challenges that's come with that. And, you know, there was people in the company who couldn't, who weren't able to scale with the company and having to make difficult decisions there and, and lots of challenges, which I'll come back to. And then I guess like the, the final phase was really as we sort of started to acquire, expand into some of these new territories. Again, you know, my role became much more sort of focused on the business and um and you know trying to be a good strategic partner to to the c team um which isn't always easy in our roles but i mean i, I there's a few lessons probably that that springs to mind i'm, and I'm Ian, maybe before we go into, into that and... before we go into that can yep. you give us um a short context on the the business or the strategy hypothesis you had also with raising this 500 million because i think if you raise that much money you you go in with a big bet what what was the bet or is the bet yeah yeah so so the multiverse was the bet you know this was before as i say uh you know facebook had you know rebranded and it was becoming all of the talk but what it kind of boils down to is like to give everybody the ability to live in multiple different worlds, you know, and how can these sort of virtual worlds be as meaningful? I'm not going to say, say indistinguishable, but as meaningful as the real world. So the interactions we have in them. So if my, me and some friends get together who are all, you know, distributed around the globe, we get together and watch a sporting event or a concert together and we interact like we're in person and we feel the connection to each other and that's always been the goal of improbable and credit to herman who's had that vision herman's the ceo and founder you know he's had that vision for years and the reason that we took on such a large investment our burn was tiny at the time probably 20 30 million just off the top of my head you know, we took on 500 million. And the reason for that is, is it's extremely hard to do. <laughs> you know, we, there are so many challenges to solve as we've seen with the likes of Amazon when they try and go into this space or Facebook who are currently obviously having all their efforts focus on this. It is really, really hard to build, you know, both the underlying technology that supports this. So how can you have the scale and have a number of people in one space, you know, that's very important for experiences. How do you make meaningful experiences, whether it's a game or a concert or an event? And so like, we knew it was going to be a long journey and we knew that we needed the funding to, you know, allow us to experiment and work through that. And Improbable still on that journey, honestly. I think we've come on so far. Um, I think they're doing very well. They've all, they're also have, have, 
gone into the Web3 space as there's very much alignment between these two things. Um, but they're still on that journey. And so and so hopefully they're going to continue on and um, and turn out very successful. And to, to come after this huge vision of multi-product, multi-markets, how does the people side and the org side look like to enable this growth with the whole complexity how did you how did you have to partner with yeah. the cc that this is being enabled yeah so you know ultimately ultimately our structure within the people and talent team needs to reflect the structure of the business. And so what I mean by that is that the way we structured ourselves would, would, would align with the business. And so we would ask ourselves as a business, what should be central and consistent across all areas of the company? So for example, the brand, you know, we want the brand to be consistent. We want our marketing to be consistent, um, you know, our voice, our tone to be consistent across all areas, regions, products, as much as, you know, we, we feel is reasonable. And so from a people and talent perspective, it's like, well, what do we need to be consistent from our perspective? So we don't want people on multiple different systems unable to interact with each other. So we need a central, you know, IT team that supports that. Every time you walk into an improbable office, either in China or London, I want it to feel the same. I want it to have the same look and vibe and feel familiar to people, you know, because it's all about the, you know, showing the culture we've got. So, again, we would keep something like that central. Where's just the economies of scale, interview coordination? There's no need to have six different interview coordinators spread all over the globe. So, you know, let's make sure we're centralizing things like that. But then, but then you, you've got the question of what parts of the business do we really want to be decentralized? And so like our China team's a good example of that, which is the market in China, you know, is extremely different to the market in the US or the UK, for example. So that team needs the autonomy to adapt, you know, be agile, make mistakes. You know, they really need to be market and customer facing. And so Therefore, if we try and dictate that they must use the same performance scheme that we were using, um, you know, and the rest of them probable, it just doesn't make sense. So we would make sure that they had more of a decentralized, you know, people and talent team. That doesn't mean that we weren't all on the same team and we weren't all working towards the same goals. But, you know, it gave those members of the team the autonomy themselves to make sure that they could build things that were meaningful and needed for the business. So that's how we thought about it, you know, and, you know, we constantly iterated back and forth matrices, you know, fully decentralized, fully centralized. There was lots of different iterations, as you can imagine, with any scaling company. But, you know, we always tried to come back to, you know, what's best for the business? How should the business be set up? And then we should ultimately be reflecting that. And Ian, this is something really important what you just mentioned i think you need to be very flexible and you need to go back and forth and um decentralize centralize based on company phase based on leaders and functions and regions sometimes and 
some people say growing organization organizations is a bit like an art. You could see it like that, but I see it more as a science because you always need to see what's what's the environment and then try to get some variables and do some um, testing of hypotheses and also always backwards plan on what's the outcome you want to achieve. And based on the findings through experimentation, you then make a decision that is fundamental. And not, oh, we do it that way because I think the style is right now. I think that's not the right way and many companies do that. So you need to have certain frameworks and fundamentals um, in how systematic and scientific you approach organizational design, especially through growth. But most companies just don't take yeah. the time to think, zoom out and gather data and try to interpret it and talk with different stakeholders about what are the alternatives, what is the impact, because otherwise, if you don't do that, you just run into a problem and you realize it after you have the problem. And that's fucking expensive. Sorry for my language. <laughs> <laughs> I love your passion, Thomas. I, I couldn't echo what you've just said more. I think like reflecting back on my time at Improbable, I think early on, I definitely made mistakes with both a couple of the aspects here which is number one, I felt like there was the right way of doing things from an org structure perspective, you know, whether that was, oh, look at how Spotify are operating and their model, you know, that must be the one, the model that works. Let's think about how we can adapt for us. Or then, you know, right, I'm reading lots about these self-managed organizations. And I think, you know, we should take some of these principles and try and apply them to improbable. And, you know, as you've just articulated, that's totally the wrong way to approach things. You know, it's all about who, what are we trying to do as a business? What are our goals? And then, you know, what structures will support those goals? And, you know, so if you take a manufacturing company that's all about sort of efficiency and standardization, it would be nuts to try and decentralize a lot of things like that downwards. You know, you need those controls, et cetera. So there's no right or wrong structure. It's all about, you know, making sure the structure you have is, is an aid of the goals and the strategy. And that's definitely something I missed early on in my time at Improbable. And then I think like the second piece to that is, making sure that everything else is pointing in the right direction. We keep hearing about, you know, what's the sort of high performing. We need to make our company high performing. Seems to be like the buzzword right now. Well, for me, that kind of comes down to, you know, is your structure, are your incentives, your systems, are these all pointing towards the same goals you know, and that ultimately is the goals of the company. And so that's definitely something I, I missed. And and I think you touched on one other point there, which is also something that I, I did wrong in my early days at Improbable, which was building in isolation. You know, I was used to the Goldman Sachs model of we would put together a new bonus scheme and we would, you know, announce that to the company and Nobody would ever say anything. Nobody would ever challenge it. I'm sure they were absolutely furious in the background and hated us. But, you know, they was just accepted and, you know, we rolled it out. And I remember when I first joined Improbable and I tried to roll out, I think it was maybe a performance scheme or something like that to the company. And, you know, I couldn't believe it. I was getting questioned. I was getting asked, you know, well, why have we, you know, gone for this approach? And, 
where's the data to back this up? And and it was like a, it was a really difficult lesson, but an important one to learn early on, which is, you know, you have to build your people products with the company. You know, it sounds simple, but it's harder. <laughs> and, and a lot of companies still miss this is, you know, you have to really teach, you know, your employees or your customer and shout out to um, Jessica um, her new book, um, Built for People. Haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I'm sure it echoes this, you know, of treating your people products like a product um, and, you know, like any other product in the company and, you know, using the principles um, of product management to roll out your people products and, and yeah. using design thinking to involve yes. your employees in the journey. I totally very, agree. Very, very important. In case you have any feedback or anything you want to share with me, please send me an email on thomas at peoplewise.com or hit me up on LinkedIn. And in case you really enjoy the show, please subscribe. I would really appreciate it. Ian, we need to shortly wrap it, wrap it up because I promised my audience and try to stick to it that we make it around 30 minutes or less. We are shortly over, but we have still important content. So one thing I want to touch base with you is the whole people operations field. It seems like boring admin stuff because everybody just needs to enter the data and then you get paid and then um, it's the foundation or infrastructure for basic people analytics, but that's it. This is how people see it sometimes maybe in the beginning that's okay because it's really not complex if you're a small company but now tell us what's the complexity in people operations <laughs> when scaling improbable and also when you have multi-country um, to standardize payroll or just streamline payroll what are the problems you need to maybe anticipate that you don't get into um, huge um, i would say payment delays of salaries for instance or just calculating wrong salaries or just making fundamental mistakes that are just not good for trust with the employees and so on and so forth so maybe we, we deep dive shortly into that topic yeah yeah sure sure so again you know lessons learned through many many mistakes um over my time and particularly improbable in this space so you know, I wouldn't, I would phrase it differently, which is, yeah, I mean, it's not a in particularly interesting topic when you think about payroll or systems data, but, you know, when done right, that is a real enabler to a business. Like I really, really believe that. And I've seen that with some of the companies I've been working with, you know, if you have the ability to easily and quickly, you know, spin up new entities or employ people in different places go where the talent is or go where your customers are, you know, that's a huge, huge advantage. And it's very difficult to do. And um, that's on the employment side. And then from a data perspective, you know, something I, I'm very passionate about, and I'm lucky to have worked with some great people in this space, which is there is so much untapped data. And I'm not just talking about what's in your HRIS, but, you know, what conversations that go on communication slack channels performance data marketing data you know there is so much we can learn and and do differently as a result of that information and what i think we did in the early days and what i see a lot of companies doing and this is very natural when you're scaling up quickly is it's totally reactive your systems strategy, your payroll strategy, your entities, 
you know, it's right, we now need to go here. What's our quick solution to do that? You know, we're going to roll out an engagement survey. So let's just get another platform here. You know, right, well, we need this report. So let's download our spreadsheet from Bob and let's kind of analyze it. It's all reactive. And and the key thing is if you want to build well in this space and consistently and for the long term, you have to really step back and design it from the ground up. And so, you know, when we were improbable, if we had a new joiner starting you know, on work, maybe a few hundred people, if a new joiner started, it would be, you know, six, genuinely six different systems would have to be updated. None of them spoke to each other. You know, we had like an accountancy firm doing our payroll on spreadsheets. We'd spend loads of time. There was just no, you know, the reporting was manual and we would have to run the reports and then give it to managers. And so, you know, really as we were scaling, really scaling, we took the step back and said, right, how do we build this for the long term? So, you know, thinking about Either with your systems, you can either have, you know, your best in class systems. So you're the best engagement platform and the best, you know, perform OKR platform. But make sure they link up and speak to each other and, and give a consistent experience to the employee. You know, we all have system fatigue. The last thing you want is to be having to log on to loads of different platforms with different whatever passwords, etc. So in certain cases, we went for that type of approach or in certain cases, Let's maybe lose some functionality, but that allows us to have one platform that can serve them all. So, you know, we made a, we went through a huge project where rather than using 12 different local payroll providers, we moved on to CloudPay, you know, a global payroll provider. And, you know, what that meant is that, you know, payroll goes from in every region, you're spending three or four days and, you know, a week, a month, sorry, running payroll to suddenly, you know, you're doing it in one day across the globe. But yes, it takes a lot of setup to get there. And then it also allows us to be, well, suddenly we're going to be moving into this region. And well, we know we've got the infrastructure there to scale uh, quickly and efficiently. And then equally on the data side, you know, again, it's not revolutionary, but let's get every piece of data we have into our warehouse. Let's leverage the warehouses that we already have from our engineering teams, et cetera. Let's get every single piece of data we've got in there as, a, as point one. There's the data cleanliness point then that comes as two, right? You know, shit in, shit out. So let's make sure that we have the processes right, that that data is up to date, clean. There's Slack bots reminding people and error reports, whatever we need to do. And then let's build out dashboards for people in whatever platform you want. We chose Tableau. Um, and let's get that data in the hands of managers. You know, the last thing that we want to be in the people and talent team is sort of the owners of these things. It's like, let's enable our managers. Let's get the data in front of them. Let's sort of allow them to react, you know, as and when they need to. And so now when I sit down with young companies in particular, I really try and stress the let's be proactive in our building in this space. It will save us enormous pain down the line. Uh, it really, really will. Let's think about, well, what's scalable here? You know, what's our solution going to be? Are we going to get go best in class and link them all up? Are we going to sort of sacrifice some of the functionality and sort of roll out one platform to, to roll them all you know, let's think now about our data. Let's push it out to where people need it, when they need it, 
um, because certainly, you know, for, from my experience, it saves enormous, enormous pain. I agree. It was a very, very strong um, summary and um, blueprint, I would say. So thank you so much. Any final words from your side? Um, no, I guess I just want to say, you know, thanks for having me. Really great to be on here. If anybody's feel like I've only really just scratched the surface there, I made so many other mistakes that are improbable and beyond. Uh, if anybody's interested ever in hearing anything, then please do reach out to me. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, and yeah, it was just uh, nice to reflect back on some of the madness. Yes. And we also had some madness together, I can say. <laughs> so um, any any other guest you would recommend I should interview? Oh, I mean, there's many. Jessica, have you have you interviewed her yet? I mean, no, maybe, but maybe she virtual. I think Virtual also told me Jessica, but then I think we never got the intro done. So if you know her and could make an intro and um, ask her if she would be up for a sh um, an podcast, I would love to do so and interview her. Definitely. Great. I'll definitely do that, Thomas. Yes. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Then Ian, thank you so much. Um, we link all, uh, we link the book in the show notes and also your um, LinkedIn so people can reach out and I, I can definitely recommend reaching out to you because I think it was really a key contact when we found you as well um, for Tier back then. It was a high complex and high pace project um, we needed to deliver and you were a key enabler in many things. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's a good summary. Well, thanks, Thomas. You take care.